Hello and welcome to Adjuster Tracking. I'm Eric McClanahan. I'm Joe Von Hoffman. Adjuster Tracking is, a, is brought to you by the Playlist Podcast Network. All our episodes can be found at theplaylist.net. So Joe, what are we talking about today? Well, well this is the, it's the end of the summer still. and um, <laughs> It never ends. No, the, the never-ending summer. That's right. Of, of like of despair, it's been <laughs> like little little spots of like promise. But um, yeah, the summer ended with like a a pretty decent horror film, uh, "Don't Breathe," which uh, it's one of two don'ts that came out in like the last month. <laughs> don't think twice. Don't breathe. Yeah, because I think titles are becoming so just like like desperately interchangeable that they have to become commands now, you know, <laughs> shut the fuck up the movie. And, uh, I think you're but, onto something. I, apropos of very little, I, I just stumbled on, there was a Netflix series called scrotal recall at one point, And I think now it's yeah. been, it's been changed to lovesick, which is kind of, uh, a well, lovesick love. Yeah. That's sort of, that's one of the interchangeable titles, but right. I think, in the past, like, few years, there was, like, the whole blacklist kind of, like, curveball of, like, of course this movie's never going to come out if it's called Go Fuck Yourself, but I got to know what this script is. It's called Go Fuck Yourself. So I think, like, there's, like, you know, people think that they're getting an angle in on having, like, an unsellable title, which, to me, Scrotal Recall would be one of them. Like, my, I felt like my eyes were never going to roll back to their normal position when I read that title. I was like, yeah. Yeah, fucking break. <laughs> but uh, back to Don't Breathe. <laughs> um, it's, uh, it's, by, it's the second feature? Was, was Evil Dead, the remake of Evil Dead, his first feature? Yeah, Fede Alvarez, yes. Yeah, so it's his second feature, and both you and I are, you know, big, we're big enough enthusiasts of the Evil Dead remake. In fact, you defended it on the Over Under podcast, correct? It is. I, I defended it, and my, my two co-hosts, Ryan and Octe, uh, definitely were much more, and I'd say the majority of loving the original Evil Dead, where I actually think that remake is is better than the original Sam Raimi movie. You know? Yeah, I think it's I think it's an improvement for sure. It's just taking like what the original kind of like maniac spirit of the original that like now is kind of mired in a camp that's inescapable. That if you kind of have a a positive nostalgic association with the original, that can kind of act as your guide through the camp whereas like you may feel alienated and like this movie's just fucking goofy you know and and now there's there still is a kind of like a a, a hilarity to the remake of evil dead there's like there's like a, a kind of like mischievous you know humor in it but it's got a, a kind of muscular meanness to it that uh i think is is very contemporary and it sort of joins the the Dawn of the Dead remake as like serviceable remakes and like uh, worthwhile sort of like other, otherwise like horror movies that get remade ultimately as much as people bemoan them like why are you doing that don't do like they'll get forgotten just trust me like they will nobody cares about the Poltergeist remake the Amityville <laughs> horror remake the Omen remake like none of like, once you mention those titles no one's thinking about the remake they're thinking about the 1982 Poltergeist. They're thinking about the 1976 Omen. Uh, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm. I could stop there. But um, <laughs> Don't Breathe is his his second feature, Fede Alvarez. And it, it sort of popped up on the, the the festival rounds this year and like was, you know, I think I think there's enough to it that on a surface level there there's like it kind of looks like a lot of horror movies. It's got that that grimy green tint to it. It's just like, you know, it's got a woman in peril gasping for, for air, like trapped into a, a claustrophobic circumstance. And like, we've seen that since like the two thousands where it's just like, help me. And like walls are dripping and it's like, everything's (laughs) jaundiced and disgusting. But like, because Evil Dead was so kind of the remake of it was so ambitious and so just like balls out disgusting term, but like it just had such a mania to it that it was like, oh, great. This is a filmmaker who has like you like you're going to have to contend with whatever he's doing. Like he's bringing it to you and it's not half assed. It's not a sort of PG 13 of the horror movie experience. It's visceral and it's overwhelming. And it's just like, okay, good. Like this, this, like he's knocking through a barrier 
that we've been kind of developing in terms of like a numbness to a certain type of horror movie. And even though Don't Breathe kind of like looks like a lot of other horror movies, its conceit was you, it's these three teenagers who are staging these robberies in a otherwise kind of like ghost town Detroit, mm-hmm. the Detroit that we got to know from Ryan Gosling's directorial debut, The Lost River. It was like a, a Remember that one? Yeah. Anybody? <laughs> Did you? you? Oh, you took our word for it and didn't see it? <laughs> um, so it's just like a desolate place and like these these kids um are breaking into the sort of few remaining homes that exist and they stumble upon this this one that's in this barren desolate wastelandish neighborhood and uh it's this blind man who won a court settlement and has been like hoarding the money and they know about it and he has a a security system installed that the their way in through these homes that they're robbing is because one of the kids is the son of uh, like a security expert who's in, in charge of installing all these security systems. So we've got the three, the three main characters, and like they're they're all kind of boring. <laughs> they're as interchangeable as some of like the titles of late. Um, you know, one of them is kind of it's he's got like a, a hip hop affectation to him. Oh, well, I, he's, I got, thought... he's got his character. Few cornrows. All right, so. <laughs> Dude, did he remind you? He reminded me of Jared Leto from uh, Panic Room. Yeah, well, not just the cornrows; like other other parts of him reminded you of Jared Leto. <sighs> it's probably mostly the visual, the cornrow thing. You know, this one was updated, of course. Where he had no he had no braids on the side. You know, it's very shaved, uh, very very short on the yeah, sides. That's that's more of a like mid two thousands kind of a thing. It's le- it's less Panic Room because he did the full full cornrows this was like shaved on the side that's very contemporary it is yeah but you know also just i guess the the sort Put of on over- hair and makeup for that <laughs> yeah dude well done there uh but like yeah maybe the other similarities are just like home invasion movies and he had a they both were sort of aggressive characters compared to the rest of their groups uh in that so yeah very reminiscent there's there's a lot of other things that actually reminded me of panic room uh and don't breathe as well like the 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 thing about Alvarez, I think that makes him stand out maybe in a in a crowded horror like genre right now, or mm-hmm. it's always been crowded. But is he does have a level of technique that he's already kind of you could maybe show off. He would be a way to describe it, but really like he really is uh, likes long fluid takes that he takes that he makes use of and don't breathe. He sets up uh, telling you. Uh, he kind of sets up the the geography of the house uh, as they're breaking into it, and and in a way that felt similar to what Fincher was doing in Panic Room, but even as show offy as it can be in Alvarez uh, film, like nothing is quite as like over the top show offy as something like Panic Room. But uh, yeah, there were connective tissues there. Yeah, I think also there was something a little overly aggressively CGI'd about Panic Room that mm-hmm. like was kind of help detach from the tension that I think is a little more successfully built in don't breathe as opposed to panic room. Like I think don't breathe is as as just a lot more organic. Like you, you have the, the, the blind character who, um, who's I'm not, I'm not being uh, insensitive. The character is literally listed as the blind man. in the credits. <laughs> so, um, way to cover your tracks there. Yeah. No, no problem. <laughs> hey, blindy. Um, so played by Stephen Lang, I think he's like the probably the the best performance of the film. Uh, you may know, you may remember him as the belligerent military officer in Avatar, mm-hmm. or as the Steven Seagal lookalike Native American reform expert in Band of the Hand. Oh, no one saw Band of the Hand. Okay, moving on. Deep cuts. Deep so, cuts. Mm-hmm. So Stephen Lang, he plays this veteran who is like well versed in combat, hand to hand combat. So when the these kids essentially break into this house is like, you know, this, this score is going to set them on their way. And so like every character is given like just enough motivation to sort of flesh them out as like their own individual characters, all three of them. And there's an intimacy to the movie where it's like this, this obviously just because the scale of the film, like there's three, three characters, one sort of force of a villain character played by Stephen Lang. And, um, so there's not going to be a high body count in this movie. There's mm-hmm. like there's there's a sense of consequence and scale, and like in 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 a sort of like teeth gnashing kind of intensity to it 
that like it it also gives it you know like a, a sort of edge on contemporary horror movies that like you know if if they're not PG thirteenified they're therefore just like going all out and the violence has no sense of like real consequence and no sense of meaning anymore. Mm-hmm. And in this film, like it does, it's a sort of bruised and sort of like brutal film and experience. And it, it uses like in the, in the small claustrophobic confines of the house that most of the action takes place in, it's got some like pretty decent set pieces in it, you know? Definitely. And um, I think, you know, you pointed out before I actually saw the movie, but it's got, you know, uh, eventually when it when it sort of like runs the course of like going through every level of the house and like after a few surprises, like the movie has to eventually crescendo and it it like I feel like it finds its ending and then it keeps ending. Yeah, keeps ending. And it's like of those endings, there's a few really good ones. I don't know if it ends on the perfect one, but like the movie to me had earned it enough goodwill at that point to just be like, okay, however, it, unless it's all a dream, uh, words <laughs> U.S. of as is wisdom, like then like it's it'll be fine. However, this ends. Mm-hmm. Oh, they're all the same person. Well, that sucks. So, <laughs> oh, Bruce Willis end. was dead all along. I didn't see that yeah. coming. Yeah. yeah, Bruce Willis pops up for no reason. He's like, I'm dead. We know. <laughs> <laughs> that was weird when that happened. Yeah. No, I I agree. I I think um the reason it's like I, I I think we're basically on the same page with the movie for the most part is like it's a really enjoyable like theatrical experience. I don't like yeah. know how crowded your your theater was when you saw it, but mine was at a preview screening, so it was a packed house and it's a very like the audience a responsive audience will heighten the experience of watching yeah, of this course. movie. It is built for that. In a way that you know, just watching it by yourself at home would it would I would think it would definitely lose something. But um, you can uh, there was there was that conversation on the Brett Easton Ellis podcast maybe years ago when he had Alexander Aja on the the French filmmaker horror filmmaker who who actually did the uh, a, a decent remake himself. The Hills Have Eyes remake is mm-hmm. you know, it's a solid one. Yeah. Um, he talked about the the idea of like uh, there was a discussion in there about like he didn't care like absurdity or things that don't make actual sense don't really bother him. And he likes the idea of kind of pushing things beyond that, where it doesn't have to make sense. And, uh, anybody that's seen high tension, you know, that it makes zero sense by the end. Once the turn it takes, once it takes that turn, you're just like, wait, what? Yeah. What? How does this work? Don't breathe. Doesn't have that kind of like, uh, almost hallucinatory, like where the hell, like this, like it makes no sense sort of turn. It just, it falls into a trap of like, it feels like it's a very thin or it's just a very compact, small idea for a movie. And it felt like they kind of ran out of steam at about the hour mark and things had to kind of get, they just had to prolong it or have multiple endings to, to fill it out to a full length, which, which is, it's, I think you're right though. I mean, like the movie is, um, really strong in its set pieces, the way it sort of breaks down each and escalates things in the movie. It also is uh, really efficient as a storytelling uh, in its storytelling. I mean, the setup of the characters, the things you were explaining in the beginning of the show here only take the movie about five or 10 minutes to really set up. And they do a lot of it through quick editing or without over explaining without using a bunch of exposition. There's a lot of impressive things about it. And I still think Alvarez uh, has, is like gonna make something really great that we won't have gripes with eventually, but right. he, it, he is an exciting director in this in this genre, and I think it's kind of heartening to see Don't Breathe do well at the end of a really like dull. You know, we've complained a lot about the summer is just lacking in, in a lot of the big movies. Yeah. It's nice to see horror as a genre overall doing pretty well. I mean, Don't Breathe and a lot of other titles proving that a low budget movie can really be much more profitable than a giant gamble. It's, it's good to see. And I hope lessons are learned from that for, for the next few years. Yeah. It's, it's great to see also, I think the, the sort of the entry point to this episode that we talked about beforehand was that like, we're going to talk about how landscape and setting, especially with uh, this movie and the, the movie we'll talk briefly about afterwards. um, Just like the sense of, this movie takes place in Detroit, as we said. Mm-hmm. Ryan Gosling's Detroit. Um, <laughs> just like a sort of desolate area. Like having having a sense of location when movies have become so kind of 
boring and they feel like they exist on this kind of sterile Ikea set on on a soundstage, you know, just like the Marvel movies and how like even if there's there there's a sequence or a set piece around like an, an actual, you know, a monument that we know that exists in space and time, it still feels like it's all taking place in this airless studio. Like, and there's like an interchangeability to it that it doesn't have like a sense of location. And that location becomes its own character if you find a good one, you know? And like, I think we've become obsessed with our own decay. Like people love, you know, photo slideshows of, of ruin of American ruins, basically. Mm-hmm. That's become like its own term of like ruin porn or whatever it is. Add porn to anything and you 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 know, you've got a new meme. But uh <laughs> so like people love, you know, photographs of Detroit falling apart. So because it's got like this sense of like it's 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 haunted on its own. And like it it's it's the city that sort of set designs itself, you know, and like it's sort of like beautifully tragic in that way. And I remember like I watched a, a Vice special called Abandoned and it's about ghost malls and these sort of like abandoned tokens of like what what used to be so common and now they're just like desolate and hollowed out and so sad and they're but they're still like blights and they still like kind of impose upon our vision mm. you know so there's just something about like something we invested so much in that fell apart and how that sort of absence becomes a place of potential menace you know in our kind of collective psyche so like in don't breathe it becomes like this place where, you know, murder's possible and like, you know, maniacs are lurking. And it's just like, that's nothing new. I mean, abandoned areas have been, you know, fodder for like thrillers for decades and decades, you know, like Judgment Night and Assault on Precinct 13, oh, yeah. stuff like that. Right. And so uh, just this this idea, I was just, I was thinking about it like, well, what's what's the counter to that? Because what's scarier to me in America now is how fast history is being erased by these sort of like constant condominium, like the, the condoization of like every city that's getting sort of like aggressively gentrified. Like how do you make a horror movie about the sort of the boredom of all these same buildings going up and like the aggressively gentrified cities? Like how do you make a horror movie out of that when it's so dull, you know, just thinking about like what zombies represent in films, what like vampires represent, what cannibals represent. And like what's happening to cities now is like, you know, like you see depictions of Michigan as this great hub of, you know, like industry and in an industry that fell and then therefore like it left kind of like a, a cancerous sort of spot where like nothing could come in its place. And so we look at the sort of collapse of the American dream and in that collapse, uh, like menace is possible, but it's right. like, to me, it's just like the greater menace is like, sw- like wiping out all of history and putting a condo in its place. I just don't think that would make a very good horror movie. <laughs> you never know. Maybe the condo horror movie is the next idea to the next big idea. It would certainly work. Uh, in in this environment that we're talking, where we're starting to see a lot of, uh, particularly horror movies, but you know, genre movies are shooting in Detroit and using that location for yeah. like that instant production, like b- production design quality to it, and the the layers that it can add. I mean, it follows from uh, was that last year? God, I can't even remember. It follows from a couple years ago. It came out, in, yeah, two, yeah, two thousand, like spring two thousand fifteen. That's right. Um. A, a noticeably existing in a sort of unspecified time period where it wasn't clear, but also in this broken down Detroit. Like it's, it was really memorable. I think the one that evokes a lot of what you're talking about and uh, had it as a strong theme is only lovers left alive where uh-huh. the, the Jim Jarmusch vampire movie, which really got at that idea of erasing the, the history that's there, it's right now, it just exists in these crumbling buildings, these yeah. once former glorious like examples of industry, and they're just gone now. And it's only a matter of time before Detroit's going to become a city, probably. I th- I've been reading that it's already happening a little bit where like, you know, thing, it's so cheap to live there that it's only it's only a matter of time before a lot of that just gets, you know, crumbled, gets taken down and, and condos come in their place. That really is a a depressing reality that we're facing. And 
I think horror movies and directors are using it really well to to make their movie just just to add more to their movies. I don't know how much Don't Breathe uses that beyond it's it's a, a sort of um, useful setting for this particular home invasion story. Yeah, it's very functional just because like because he lives in a in an empty area where it's like the last standing house that anyone lives in. No one in therefore no one's going to call the cops because like when gunshots are going off and people are screaming. So it's very functional in that sense that they they're in like a wasteland basically. It's doing what like other movies that have become so kind of like growingly tiresome like with no sense of real character of no sense of real like location like it doesn't leave an impression and you know despite its flaws i think don't breathe uh like it leaves an impression and there's some like great twists and it's like sense of like tapping into something you know however superficially it's tapping into a, a sort of like an American, a uniquely american grief with like collapse as like it's kind of set dressing it still is kind of evocative and, and leaves a mark. And um, I don't know if you want to transition into uh, the, the lesser known title that's not making waves on the box office chart. Uh, <laughs> making zero also, waves. <laughs> also said in Michigan, um, anti-birth is far less wastelandish, but still there's like a sense of kind of uh, American desolation and despair. And uh, it's the, Feature film debut of Danny Perez, who worked with Animal Collective a lot, shooting a lot of their videos and shot their sort of long form horror hallucination montage called Odd Sack that mm. played festivals and I think played some some museums in New York. Um, so I was interested to see like, you know, a lot of the imagery they play with and a lot of the sort of the spirit of Animal Collective, like, oh, who's who's one of their collaborators? What would a sort of coherent narrative be from like someone of of their camp and i was like really excited to see it and it stars uh natasha leone louis savini mark weber who you know what i don't see enough mark weber i like him a lot i do too yeah and he's popping up more and more he had that really memorable uh if brief uh role in green room uh, which if we if we could pivot back very quickly yeah don't breathe um imagine if like the sense of of like economy that the characters were established with in green room. Like imagine if that same, like the, the characters in don't breathe are established with the same amount of economy, but there just doesn't seem to be the same sense of presence with the performances or with the writing. Like, so, so you just don't have a sense of like the, they're ne- them necessarily being real people and everyone in don't breathe is fine. Like everyone's right. like, you know, like they just don't feel like fully, develop fleshed out three-dimensional characters the way they do in green room which is another sort of like tight economical claustrophobic thriller um dripping and jaundiced and about just like uh, the american collapse at its heart this being uh, you know a, a weak year when i look back at what i've seen what i've really loved this year green room is high up on that list yeah and when i talk with you know just other movie fans and ask them what they've liked every time, or if they ask me what's like some of your favorites from this year, I always list off green room and there's a sense of like, yeah, I, huh? Like they're confused by it. Like what makes it greater, better than a sort of average thriller like that or an average what horror makes movie? their knee jerk reaction seem like it's a lesser movie. And that's why they're hesitant to, to kind of co-sign your decision. Cause right. I, that sense of hesitation that you were just like mimicking, it's just like, well, why? Because it's a fucking, it's a phenomenal movie, right? Yeah, exactly. Bill, it, it, it's, it succeeds much more than movies of its ilk often do, and it's maybe it's, it's subtle. It's a, it's Green Room is actually a pretty subtle horror movie, and that is not a word you use often in the genre. And Fede Alvarez is not a subtle director. He's not trying to make Don't Breathe a subtle commentary or anything. You know. Uh, it's not how he works, but that's the thing I appreciate so much when I look back at something like Green Room is the economy with which it can set up these characters. And on the surface, they might seem like they're types, right? Or there's the drummer, here's the bass player, and oh, she's the one that kind of takes care of things for the band. But yet there's, within the action, there's never a moment where the movie has to stop to build the characters. Everything is built into that story so well, and you see the characters become more three-dimensional at all the way through the end of the film. It's, 
it's a really impressive achievement with Green Room. And I think that is like the opposite of what you usually see in these kind of movies. Don't Breathe is impressive in how it can set up that stuff. But beyond that, it has nothing more to really add to these character types. They One right. is just the cornrow guy, the kind of jerky guy that's going to make the first mistake. The other's the good guy that, and and they kind of exist in this love triangle with the um the other member of their trio breaking into the house, uh, this woman, and um it kind of stops there. And Stephen Lang is fun as his performances. You can always count on Stephen Lang to give a real kind of batshit kooky kind of performance. Like, did you ha- were you wondering what he was doing with his voice most of the movie? Because I, I was. <laughs> His Batman voice? Yeah, dude. Like, I, I wondered what the like the decision was. And it's those sort of fascinating, fascinating like, actor decisions that I'll, like, dwell on when I'm watching a movie sometimes. And uh, he's always... It's, it's as though he was talking mid-burp, but the, the <laughs> mid-burp never ends. He's like, he just, like, the burp never kind of came to a climax. Just went impossibly deep. And like, all right, okay, I guess... He's creepy. Yeah. Yeah, no, exactly. Like those kind of things might force an actor to explore or play around or go for something like that when a character is kind of thin on the page. But I guess that's a point of comparison. Like nobody had to do that. You don't see any actors doing that in something like Green Room, which is what I think really does elevate that movie to something that is for me a no brainer is one of my favorites of the years where uh, I guess the genre as a whole, a lot of people might just scoff at like what, green room like that was okay why why would that be one of the best movies Um, yeah yeah. to me it just hits green room hits these heights so pitch perfectly that like because it does it so well you you almost start looking for like well this has to have some like greater meaning because it's like it's hitting these things like it's it's got this like genre kind of packaging but it, it does something so exceptionally well and so emotionally involving and so like exhausting and crazy that you're just like, this this has to have some sort of like higher meaning. And so you think about it and linger on it longer than like you typically would. Mm-hmm. Unless you're unless you've sort of come in with a, a sort of built-in dismissiveness about it. You're like, yeah, it's fine, but uh moving on. As though like you you know you're assigned your prestige movies for the year. And like you figured out ahead of time that this is not one of them. Right. It's not worthy of that at all. Yeah. Cause I think like that, that dismissiveness that you were, you were mimicking. I think that that's a, that's a common reaction. Like really? That's, that's one of your favorites. They get confused, you know? And so it's just like, well, why are you confused? Like, why can't something that is a genre movie that's that typically you feel one way about, why can't that be exceptional? And so I think that um, now it's sad. Now I feel like the movies that we are discussing <laughs> aren't, aren't of that kind of caliber, but like they're, they're fine in their own way. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like it's, it's, it's interesting, the sort of built in dismissiveness, but you know, at the same time, like there's a huge audience for a movie, like don't breathe less. So for anti-birth, which I started to talk about and uh, <laughs> didn't really get into, but um I think that anti-birth is like it's an it's an interesting it's it's in an environment that you don't really get to see enough of, you know, this sort of like wasted middle America kind of like half frozen from a shitty winter, gray and people who are just kind of laying waste to their life. Oh, yeah. You know, and like it to me the the takeaway is Natasha Leone's performance. I've always liked Natasha Leone, mm-hmm. but she's to me hysterical in this movie. Every time she takes a hit off a whippet and then on upon exhalation, like keeps talking, yeah. it, like it made me laugh every time. <laughs> and I think that there's just there's a, a kind of trauma spirited, um, like playfulness to to this movie that like if if you're looking for something a little different that's sort of in the same wasted America landscape that we're talking about with Don't Breathe, Lost River, It Follows. It sort of it fits in there, but it's an outlier because it's it's got a weird spunky body horror kind of like a, a bent to it. Yeah, t- totally. And it's um I was I was looking I I think it's on VOD now. It is, yeah. 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 And it's out there and that's mostly where anybody's going to be able to see it. But 
I think a, a question emerges because it, it does make use of that Detroit setting very well to, to add to the, the setting. And it adds a lot to this movie. But I, I, a question that arose as I was watching is like, man, there's a, like, this is better than most of the VOD sort of straight to VOD crop of its ilk. Mm-hmm. But like, where, where does this movie exist in the, like the movie going consciousness? Like, I really wonder if it just exists and sits out there and just, I wonder about the lifespan of a movie like this. Well, I think like we come across this kind of a lot and we could, you know, now use the sort of the Detroit desolation as what the kind of like film industry has become in its own wasteland sense. Right. But like, yeah, I think that there's there's always a hope and you you attach like two known indie actresses like Natasha Lyonne and Chloe Savigny and like you you have all right, we've got names, we've got names attached. We've got this guy who has like a good cult association with a band he's worked with that's very popular in a in a cult sense. And um and so like I think there's heat around things and they don't I don't think they assume they're going to wind up in a sort of VOD limbo which you could still do extremely well in mm-hmm. you know like you can you know like a movie like Blue Ruin let's just make this the Jeremy Saunier has uh, hijacked this episode <laughs> so like Blue Ruin did really well and like so that did really well on VOD and theatrical simultaneously, but probably less so theatrically than it did on video on demand. And um, with a movie like this, it played Sundance. I think it played South by Southwest. And so I think they're just always assuming like, that's going to find a place. It's going to find a place, but less so like like films like this that are sort of weird pocket genre, little like gems. Like they, they don't really have a place or like, you and I discussed the possibility of talking about Mel Gibson's new movie. Like that played nowhere. That played somewhere in Vancouver for you. Yeah. Bloodfather. Yeah. yeah, Bloodfather. And it played in Van Nuys, which is like, it's like an eternity away. If you think about just like what I have to go on the one-on-one and what, then what? Oh, I don't want to do that. And so like that movie it's just like, and it got good reviews. Like it got good reviews, and I think if it played any festivals, like maybe one or two, like there was a, a good amount of like commotion coming out about the film. And they're like, Mel Gibson, oh, is he's not such a piece of shit anymore? Oh, great! Like he's <laughs> this is a great performance. It's a little tight genre movie. Oh, it's made by this French filmmaker who did Mezzarine. Anybody see that? No, but I heard good things about it. So like there was enough commotion about it to stir something up but it didn't play anywhere and now it's dropped into it now now it is available on vod i saw mm-hmm. and so maybe we will talk about it maybe not but um <laughs> but yeah it's just like it's it's sad to know like i don't know like i i just i'd like to be surprised about like what what can succeed because it's just like the the sort of sense of resignation of like what people are going to the theater for mm. um, is just like, it's depressing, you know? Cause it's like, well, I gotta go see the big movie. Yeah. But it's supposed to be like a, a horrific piece of shit. Yeah. But I gotta see the big movie in the theater. No, you don't. You have to like, just do, just surprise yourself, you know? Mm-hmm. No, I, the Suicide Squad, which like, <laughs> I, everybody talks about that movie as like a oh it's a failure. Like no, because it, it stays making money. Like it's not so in Warner Brothers' eyes. Like is it a failure? Probably. I mean, financially is it's be, but the problem is is that it's was too expensive. They made yeah. the movie too. Exp- it's that giant gamble on something like that where yeah, let, let's stop those giant gambles. Like how much was Don't Breathe? It was like nine million dollars or something mm-hmm, like that, mm-hmm. and it made like triple that on its first weekend. So it's already yeah. making profit because the 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 way you break down a theatrical gross is it uh, a distributor does not get. So Don't Breathe made something around the neighborhood of like 25 million on its first weekend. It mm-hmm. doesn't it's not like all that money goes to the distributor. It's split at maybe half and half with uh, the theaters. You know, there's all these cuts that they get. So a movie has to make more than its budget. But uh, I, I think the horror genre right now is really proving it's like it always has been there. Right. That a reliable thing of like your little low budget movie that can that can just make tons of profit. It doesn't need to make a billion dollars. It just needs to make a hundred million dollars, which is insane to say just needs to, you know, to word it like that. But that's the culture we're in. It's, I like, I mean, to me, that's the better gamble. That's the smarter play. Um, 
I'm, yeah, it's just worrisome how the more content that gets out there and you and I try to really dig through, it's why we're bringing up a movie like Antibirth. I'll admit, wasn't crazy about this movie, mm-hmm. but I, I wanted to see it and I'm glad, I mean, if nothing else, you, you, you brought it up as something worth watching, but like just to see what's out there and to be uh-huh. reminded that like, it's, I didn't, okay, I didn't necessarily like this movie, but it's worth, I would rather spend my time trying to seek out something like that on the fringes like that. But really, where else does it exist except for like critics to talk to their friends or it's a very small thing for it. It's just, it is kind of. Fringes are getting more and more like intensely narrow. Like you used to be able to, like I remember growing up and there would be kind of like offshoot theaters where it would be like, oh, that, that like, the what normally would just go straight to video would still have a three theatrical run and like a little kind of like grindhousey theater. And those places existed. Those places don't really exist anymore. So like there, there are, there are little art house avenues and even those are shrinking in terms of like, they know that, you know, like depending on the communities that these art house independent film like theaters are existing in, they'll pick like, Oh, the sequel to, trip to Italy is coming out. So I know that old people will be coming to this for weeks so we can book that for forever. Yep. So okay. like the opportunities become slimmer and slimmer as like the avalanche of titles are intensifying. So it's like, you see, like if you were to just go to like what's new on VOD on iTunes and like, you just be like, I don't know what any of this shit is. And therefore like, I don't care. Like, mm-hmm. you know, it's just, it becomes this, this weird thing of like, what's going to rise to the top what has a sort of competitive edge or a fighting chance anymore, you know, in the, in the declining wasteland of the uh, American movie going scene. It is very akin to, uh, to Detroit as I I feel like it's a crumbling industry. (laughs) It's, you know, I, I don't want to feel, I don't want to push forward the notion. I feel like this year, especially there's been a lot written about with the summer being the way it was that, Movies are dead. Like this is the year that movies died. I've seen that. Like Ty Burr is a, is a critic for the Boston Globe. I believe he used those words. Like film is dead in 2016. And we've talked about things like Stranger Things that like did catch the zeitgeist that are through streaming service like Netflix or on TV. Um, film isn't dead. It's just it's being splintered in a way that is it's it's going to be interesting the way everything kind of pans out because are we just going to be stuck with like the few boring giant titles in theaters and, and like everything gets relegated to maybe a niche, small movie theater, the ones that exist, or does it all go to the wasteland of VOD? Like how is all this going to sustain itself is what I, is what I think about. Like, I don't want that theatrical experience to die for even the little movies. Yeah. But man, as someone that has some influence as to what movies can come to the theater I work at in Portland is like, I you can't really go to bed like I wanted to show childhood of a leader like just put it in our tiny little 50 seat theater I figured what the hell you know it's a movie worth showing on a big screen right or a mild sized big screen you know at least but there's just no there's just no there's no audience for that sort of thing it's weird that didn't used to be like if the movie was made and had merit it used to come out you know like it used to find and granted that was a time where like there was a lot less titles per week coming out. And I think with VOD, it increases the avalanche, the, the, the sheer amount of stuff that's just like toppling over people. Yeah. But like the, you know, childhood of a leader or just any of the movies that like are sort of elbowing for space in theaters anymore. Like they, it did, if it was made and got, and was a, of enough quality, like it would, it would come out. You know, like, and if people didn't show up, okay, then the next movie will make up for it. You know, like mm-hmm. it, it'll, it'll, something will shoulder the weight, but now it's just like, I don't know. It's, it's interesting thinking about those like megaplexes that exist. Cause they're, they, they came about in a time where the demand was there. It's just like, think about all the theaters that are just empty, like playing movies to no one, Seriously. you know? And like, it makes me think of that, uh, that like ghost mall special I watched on like vice that was like that they, there was a boom that happened and there was like, there was, there was a rush to create these spaces that could accommodate the people that were going. And now people aren't going 
and these places still exist and they're like they're heartbreaking you know that there's like these giant giant where like multiplexes are sort of repulsive to me but they're also <laughs> there's like a sense of like grotesque hope to them because they were just like look at all these movies look at all these things you can come see them you know and there are these boxes and they're kind of ugly they're sort of contrary to the the type of theatrical experience that i like like i love the palace type movie theaters of yesteryear you know the domes and stuff like that but multiplexes were built with the sense that like movies will always be here, people will always be going to them, and we're going to show as many as we can. And now no one's going to them. <laughs> oh man, no, I think that's the big concern. Is like if if everybody stays complacent, like I know there are obviously people in the highest positions of studios and distributors are trying to figure out the next thing that'll capture an audience. But I do feel like a lot of the time there's a sort of complacency in all the industries in the theatrical exhibition world that I actually work in and you have as well. And in mm-hmm. festival worlds that we've worked in and lived in, it's like there is this overwhelming sense of like, there's a lot of titles, but let's all go for the no brainer, uh, the no brainer, like sure bets, quote unquote. Yeah. But, but Hell, I mean, think a festival that you and I have worked for in here in Portland. I still do Portland International Film Festival. It's like there should be a there should be a desire for a sort of like a vision or a particular angle on what films that are out there and showcasing them instead of just going for the sure bets. It's, it's well, because I think that there's just an there's an inevitable dead end to that because it's just like if you're not challenging your audiences, you're not challenging yourself then like a stagnation will make death inevitable. So it's just like you have to, I mean, like this is just the greatest hits. Uh, adjust your tracking now. <laughs> I'm going to bring up the seventies, which neither one of us were alive for. But, like <laughs> that was when studios were dying or there was a threat of like, we don't know what's going to hit. So they, they took chances. And so it's just like, I don't know how distribution can take chances anymore, you know, but I, I think the chances they are taking are, or the the sort of like the high stakes gamble of like oh if we, if we do spend two hundred million dollars then we're guaranteed this and this back whereas if we spend fifty million dollars eh, who's to say you know it's just right. like you get a movie like Don't Breathe that's made for nine million makes three times that like imagine if you made like five movies on that scale the sort of steven soderbergh route of like giving a a finite amount of money to people he trusts as visionary filmmakers and you know what not all of them are going to hit but that one that you did make that made four times its budget like that can buffer everything else Mm -hmm. you know Mm -hmm. and therefore like and because you have these unique things these things that like aren't just rinsed off and forgotten and just sort of part of this like inescapable interchangeability of culture now like you have something that will withstand the test of time you know who's to know who's to say if like anti-birth will withstand the test of time but at least it like popped up as something where i was like what the fuck is like what is this right like, right there was imagery in it that if nothing like along with natasha leon's performance there was imagery in it that had me like in hysterics like i was laughing so hard at this movie and that will stick as much as like I don't know who to recommend this movie to necessarily, <laughs> it sticks with me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, and that fucking means something, you know. That's the way we. That's what you and I are always after. Is like just something like whether it's something I haven't seen before or a sensation I haven't felt in a while at a movie. It's yeah, it wakes you up. It does. It does. And exactly. We are all in danger of just falling asleep and like sort of being like, "What's the new big movie?" And I, you know, if we're If it isn't obvious, me and Joe are trying to figure out a way. Like, we want to be optimistic about movies. We want to be excited for this sort of thing as much as the audience should be. Um, And hopefully there's a sense of, like, people willing to go out there and explore for some of these titles. Because they can be worth it. It could be more. Seeing Antibirth, you'll probably remember more from something like that than you will from the deadening experience of uh, the, like... Suicide Squad. So proud to say I haven't seen so Suicide Squad. I just this is our new Spider Man. Right. Week, yeah. <laughs> week week three of not seeing Suicide Squad. <laughs> just holding strong. It's a tough battle, but we're doing our th- we're doing what we can. I want to feel excited about movies, and there's a lot of exciting stuff on the horizon, and they're already being cornered into the prestige awards 
uh, world. And that's okay, because that's a way for those to get attention. Um, you know, you brought up Steve, uh, Steven Soderbergh, and that was from uh, that sort of speech he gave a couple years ago. And he had mentioned that he would just give small budgets to a handful of directors. One of one of which he listed off was Amy Simons, who mm-hmm. he executive he essentially helped her make the Girlfriend Experience show on Stars, which was actually one of the better shows I've seen this year. It's very cinematic in a lot of ways. He's it's cool to see Soderbergh put his money where his mouth is. But also, I believe he listed off director Barry Jenkins, who has a movie that everybody is talking about now after this weekend at Telluride, um, Moonlight. Have you seen the pre? That looks amazing. Doesn't it? Right? And A two four is putting it out. I believe it's the first or one of the first films A two four has actually like helped produce mm-hmm. and put money into getting it made. Man, from just just hearing the excitement that it's this small movie, but it feels kind of grand and on an epic scale is like, yes, we need more of that. Those are the, That's why me and Joe are falling into talking about Green Room and Jer- Jeremy Solnier here on this episode. That has nothing to do with them is because like small movies can feel big and directors like that know how to do it. Like we need more of them getting getting the gigs and putting putting more films out there. It's it's the only way the industry is like will stay alive and will reinvent itself um, because it is in danger. There's a real danger of complacency all around. And I don't want to see movies. Movies aren't going to die this year. They're not dead, but I don't want that could happen. I don't want it to happen. So, all right, before we wrap up this episode, I need to announce my latest, uh, my latest pick for, for hold up the segment in which we, we often, you know, it started uh, as an examination of movies that, uh, uh, one of us really loves holds dear, uh, usually from our past or recent or long past. And we just take a look and a look at it with our present day eyes. And we have the counter of our host to hopefully, you know, cut through some of that nostalgic haze that will keep you from being critical of a movie. Um, it's, it's, you know, the segment also sometimes, uh, it will change it up and just look at if a movie does hold up over time, you know, it doesn't have to be that specific, but, my pick, uh, which we're going to talk about on the next episode, is Richard Kelly's Donnie Darko. So this one, for me, uh, as a as a, as my pick, really follows that traditional uh, segment, the the traditional description of Hold Up, I'd say. And I'm super excited to to like watch it. It's been a long time. Um, it there, you know, there's always these lists going around of oh, top ten movies from the 2000s, like you know, just meme type stuff that travels on Facebook and Twitter. And uh, one of those came up over the summer of like list your 10 favorite movies from from the 2000s on. And Donnie Darko still is in my top 10 because when I was in college, I just got obsessed with this movie. Uh, I wasn't crazy about it the first time I saw it and then I couldn't stop watching it. And that has really become uh, my mantra for films that I just have to admit. I, I love these movies. If I watch them again and again and again, something about it has, you know, tapped into my my uh, imagination. Richard Kelly is an interesting filmmaker because I, I think I feel like we've discussed another director sort of like him, where he had this incredible like debut that like um, really caught people's attention, and then really hasn't made anything that sort of matches the caliber of the like the the initial film. Totally. And so like that that's I think that that's a good angle. Because he he has what's considered a huge disaster in uh, Southland Tales, which we we could also discuss. I would like to, yeah. I've been dying to revisit that one ever since my one highly highly anticipated viewing at a theater in Minneapolis. And man, two and a half hours later, I was distraught. I was confused. A uh, confused, yes. <laughs> yeah, and and granted, like Donnie Darko came out fifteen years ago, man. and that's like that's that's a long time ago. Man, but yeah. like. That was still, it's still not that like long ago that we can't imagine what it was like to have a film not do well initially, you know, not, it didn't, it did like poorly when it came out. Like it was a small movie with a kind of like new, new, new cast of like, you know, new people that would go on to become huge, like Jake Gyllenhaal, Seth Rogen's in the movie, uh, (laughs) Jenna Malone. Um, And so like, it was a movie that like they buried because of it's like weird association with like a plane crashing because it just came out just after 9-11. Yep. And so like the mood, they kind of like hushed it through theaters and it like just stuck around and it like kept like it played Portland for months and months and months. Cause it like, 
it bounced over to Cinemagic, I remember. Mm. And like, it just wouldn't go away. And I, I saw it at Cinemagic after it had a run at like Fox Tower and stuff like that. And it just like stuck. And people were like, oh shit, have you seen this movie? And like, think about that happening now. It like, it won't, you know, and, and that's heartbreaking. Mm. But it's like, it wasn't that long ago that something like that was possible. And so by the time it came to like midnight screenings of the movie, like a year later, Every screening I would go to, because I saw it multiple times in the theater, it was packed. Like, it was like I saw it in Seattle and it was like just, it was crazily packed of people like cheering, like at the big moments in the movie. <laughs> and like, that's like to, to, like, it'll be really exciting to just go back and sort of like revisit, because I, I will have a hard time unwrapping the, the nostalgic kind of feelings I have for the movie as well. Yeah, definitely. And it's, you know, it's, it's fitting that in this, uh, like, last couple months when Stranger Things came about, and we talked about it on that podcast where we discussed the show, Stranger Things, is, like, Donnie Darko in a lot of ways feels like the seeds for that kind of deep-rooted nostalgia that exists in a lot of pop culture now. The yeah. the deep 80s nostalgia. And he was, like, really kind of, it's the smaller movie example, but it's it sort of feels like a lot of that sprung from that. And um, I'm excited to just go back. It's been so long since I have seen it, and... I think there's a lot to discuss because there's a really shitty director's cut that came out a few years later that I'm not a fan of. And so we'll be looking at the theatrical yeah. cut only. And there's a lot to get into there. And then with oh, Southland Tales. Director's cut. Yeah. Some of it. Yeah, for sure. Um, but yeah, and, and just uh, the, the things that can happen in a director's career that seems exciting and then just goes in a – just doesn't go that way. It's um, it'll, it'll be a fun one to, to discuss for sure. So. Yeah. So with that, let's uh, wrap up episode 137 of Adjust Your Tracking. As I said at the top of the show, we are a part of the Playlist Podcast Network, and you can find all our episodes at theplaylist.net. Uh, we thank uh, the the leader of that website, the editor-in-chief, Rodrigo Perez, for his support and for, for uh, giving us a platform for the show. Uh, Joe, you can find us uh, on Twitter. Where can, where can we be found there? At Adjust Your Track. Just come, come get us. Come follow us. You know. Yeah come talk to us yeah you know review and rate on the playlist podcast itunes feed where you can find all our shows all the various shows on the network are there you can subscribe uh, on itunes you can um yeah leave a rating and a review if you feel like uh, we can always uh use your suggestions and your support um i forgot to mention you can email us at adjust your tracking at gmail.com and we're also um we've got a facebook page adjust your tracking on facebook so uh, find us there We've got to also uh, give a big shout out to our behind the scenes IT producer, Drew Walner, keeping things moving for us on the back end. Um, thank you, Drew, as always, for your support and help. Yeah. Drew, Drew. And, uh, you know, with that, I need to thank you, Joe, for, for putting up with my lack of articulation on this episode. I feel like I was struggling to find the words. Sometimes I have, you know, just the brain is not firing on all cylinders. So thank you for. Uh, for uh, for you know pulling my weight on this episode, Joe. Yes, sir. I didn't see your hand go up because we're not face to face. But uh, <laughs> yeah, no 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 problem. Thanks, Eric. <laughs>